Over Season 3, Episode 3, Crazy White Fella Thinking is still over, but we're just getting started. Taking your feedback about the episode here on Post Show Recaps. Hello, everybody. I am Josh Wiggler, and joining me to podcast in order to prevent the end of the world is Antonio Mazzaro. Antonio, what's going on? Josh, is this what we have to do? We're, we have to record something on a tape. Uh, do we have to sing? Is that what we're doing? No. What we need to do is we just we're we're following the podcast line, the pod line, and we are collecting all of the podcasting abilities that we possibly can until we've collected all of the abilities that are needed to stop the apocalypse. The last one we need. We only need one more, Antonio, and that is. Christopher Sunday Burquests. Once we oh. get once we get there, <laughs> then we have all of the songs collected officially. I thought you were going to tell me that we had to kill Mike Bloom. <laughs> <laughs> no, Mike Bloom must survive. He's got a bright future ahead of him. We need Mike Bloom intact. That's uh, what I thought. Yeah, because it, if you yeah, if you want a second Bloom, that's what you need ultimately. No, you don't want to kill anybody. Antonio, how you doing this morning? Other than my murderous thoughts, not, I'm not too bad, Josh. How about you? Yeah, same here. Uh, no murder thoughts in my brain this morning. Only happy thoughts as we're talking about The Leftovers. Three episodes deep into this final season. Apparently a controversial episode, uh, according to some of our feedback and a lively, spirited Twitter discussion you and I participated in yesterday. Yeah, I think that uh, it's possible we're going, this is not the last lightning rod in this season of The Leftovers. Uh, people with eight episodes left have very high expectations and things that they want to see and minutes that they want to spend. And in the moment, it might feel like some of those minutes could be better spent or should have been spent doing other things. And everybody's got their own favorite characters or things that they want serviced in this final season. And that's a, that's a delicate tightrope walk look damon lindelof certainly not unfamiliar with this scenario josh yeah and what are you I, talking about i've got no idea what you're referencing i like i'm lindelofing uh, in a different way i like that ultimately they shot and edited and put this thing completely in the can before it ever went to air this is done the leftovers has been completed since about january and so everything is out there and now we're just responding to something that's already been created there isn't this real-time viewer feedback that may influence future decisions this is the show and this is what we're watching and we talked a little bit about it on sunday and i'm certain we'll get into it here i don't think that this particular episode can be considered just in a vacuum i think it is going to tie into the larger story and i think there are multiple moments in this episode as we discuss sunday which are going to be part not christopher sunday that are going to be part of the overall narrative of this season that we haven't seen the other shoe on yet and we'll we'll get into those today again as well in some cases no shoes at all in some cases, no shoes at all, and that will be a key part of it for sure. Yeah, so I don't know. Uh, we'll talk about that aspect of it. I think, you know, it's certainly something we discussed earlier this season already. It's like, we've been through a final Lindelof season before. Let's track that to some extent. Um, and this was the first episode where I started really hearing um, some disappointment in the feedback or starting to hear some questioning of the show's decision-making do we really need an episode that's devoted to Scott Glenn, somebody who's been a bench warmer for a lot of the show and is now being promoted to series regulars? This a worthwhile exploration of our time in this final season. I'm with you uh, in the in the sense of we kind of have to wait and see. We don't know what the final season really is yet. We're only we're not even halfway through at this point. Um, so there's that aspect. And also, I'm, I'm very happy to just watch incredibly glorious, gorgeous looks at, at, you know, Mother Nature here in Australia in this beautifully shot episode with this remarkably uh, acted performance from Scott Glenn in this episode. This guy has to carry a lot on his back 
throughout this hour, and I thought that he did a really impressive job. I totally get if this is not like an elite episode of The Leftovers for you or if it's not even, you know, in the top half of Leftovers episodes for you. Um, but to, I, I think to dismiss it outright is really early. Um, if you're on board with the show to begin with at this point, if you're not a Leftovers fan, then I don't know how you got this far. Uh, but if you, are, if you are a Leftovers fan and if you do thrive on what this show does best, I think you got to give it a little bit of rope still. I do think so as well. And the question is, what do you do with that rope? Do you uh, let yourself be choked out by it? <laughs> do you do something else ultimately with that? Uh, you're right, though. There, are, There is a lot that happens in the context of this episode that is easy enough to appreciate on a surface level. The acting, the way it's shot, just to, not just the, the monologue from Senior, frankly, but the monologue from Grace Playholt. Like, there are really fantastic things that happen in this episode But from a narrative standpoint, we just don't know what this piece is. But I think it's fair to say that we can identify it as a piece. We can say this is certainly something. This is something that is doing X, Y, and Z. Here are the themes that are present. Here are the elements of the narrative which could tie in. Here are the things in the story which will track going forward. Is this going to happen? Is that going to happen? And maybe this whole thing, Josh, really is about song lines and floods and things that once they do happen later in this season, we're going to look back at this episode and say, wow, that was pretty pivotal. There was a lot of there were a lot of hints in there as to the future of the of the season. And when we look back at this episode with future hindsight, I feel like we are going to say there was more value to it than we just have in the moment. And even in the moment, as we're saying, there's a ton of value on a lot of levels. It just may not be the levels that everyone's looking for in episode three of season three of the final season here of The Leftovers. Yeah. Uh, another thing that I'll add to that, and this all stems from a great Twitter exchange we had with the great Noah Naaman. Um, and one of the things that I said during that conversation we had online was more and more I'm trying to separate myself from like major plot expectations for The Leftovers season three and focus a little bit more on the emotions. What I mean by that is once again, we've been through a final Lindelof season before. I am and have always been and remain an enormous Lost fan, and that's not just because I'm a larger dude. Um, it's, it's, it's my favorite show, and I don't like that final season very much, but I still love Lost because I, I look at it emotionally now. I don't look at it from a storytelling perspective. If I'm going to start getting really worked up about all of the questions that were lobbed up into the air and never slammed back down, I would go insane. I have reason to believe that the leftovers will be more satisfying on that level. I think it's a it's a it's a situation where a lot of the responsibility has been divided up uh, between a lot of really great people where I think, you know, in, in his interviews lately, Lindelof has been talking a lot about relinquishing control and how he's not somebody who needs things to go exactly his way. And he's listening to his writer's room more than he has in the past. I think that's a clear reflection on the lost days. And I think that he clearly has a team that he trusts in place for the leftovers. So I do think narratively and plot wise, I have every reason to believe it's going to be very, very satisfying uh, given the, the quality of the show ever since really episode five or six of season one. Um, With that being said, in case it does all fall apart again, I'm trying to just let the feels take over. I'm trying to let the feels drive the car and let the plot sit in the back and nap a little bit and then wake up and contribute to the conversation whenever it's ready. Like, I think that the driver of this vehicle should be the emotions. It should be what the leftovers makes you feel. That has always been the strength and the bread and butter of this show for me. And in that regard, this episode made me feel a lot. Like, it made me feel like I wanted to dance to 
Kevin Sr. singing. Uh, I still have that tribal music like stuck in my head. Yeah, I, before we came on, we'll probably do a little less of it on the air. Uh, you know, <laughs> cultural sensitivity you know, being what it you know, is. Antonio was doing his didgeridoo. It's a pretty good impression. Uh, so you know, it's it's. I don't know. I I really did enjoy this episode. I love Scott Glenn as an actor, uh, and we'll see where it fits into the grand scheme narratively. And as long as the show doesn't go wildly off the rails narratively, uh, I think that I would even be okay if this wasn't massively important. If this was really an exploration of Kevin Sr., who we haven't spent this much time with, certainly by any stretch of the imagination before, and also the exploration in a very wild, out-there sort of way, in a completely different location uh, of the themes that have been prevalent throughout the show so far. Am I a prophet or am I a madman? Or maybe even more accurately, is this guy a prophet or is this guy a madman? Because this guy does not seem to think he is a madman. Yeah, the this episode boldly began with, again, we didn't discuss on, on Sunday, but a new credit song. Uh, this is the Richard Cheese, the lounge singer cover. Richard Cheese is an act who uh, has based his career on making lounge covers of popular songs, some of which are highly entertaining. I a, very much a recommend. great uh, Get Down With The Sickness. Yes, checking out that catalog. Yeah, that's a great one. Uh, they're just there are a lot of really funny ones, and there are a lot of really really good ones. So, but that was "Personal Jesus," a song by Depeche Mode, and uh, it's a song ultimately that is really prevalent to the thematic discussion, as you're just, as you're saying. And we had a great comment. I think uh, speaking of intros from David Doherty, David said, "Also, I feel like we, the audience, are standing on the roof, waiting for all the theories we are forming to come true." Most likely waiting for nothing. One at a time, the viewer is leaving the roof, with few still still saying and then trying to figure everything out. Look at it this way. I don't think there's ever going to be a flood. Maybe every episode is trying to get us to put belief in some big finale, when it will all probably end us realizing we were never understanding why all these things are happening. We will be left to choose our path of understanding, like the characters on the show. Some of us will seek a religious view of the show's meaning. Some will just move on and try to get over all the time spent trying to understand. And some will probably be so upset they choose not to talk about it and start a smoking habit. So I think that you're right. I think that, uh, David, as David points out, this particular episode is a rumination on a lot of the themes that we've been seeing throughout the series. Not only what do you put your faith in and whether or not what you put your faith in has some basis in fact, whether it's all spirituality, whether it's a bird pecking on a tape, Josh, uh, there is there is some element of what you have to put your faith in. And I think an episode like this can cause people to get off the roof. Uh, not that there isn't something that can happen in this season which will make people climb to get back on that roof, but some people are standing up still saying things are going to happen or that there's this or there's that, or they're saying the show is servicing them from a particular standpoint and others are saying this is this is too much this is a bridge too far i'm done or if i'm not done i'm at least frustrated and i do think there is some element of lost ptsd it's impossible i think for not only the viewers but for damon lindelof himself to be making this show and have that not be impacted but that said it doesn't have to be bad what results and i think at this point with this particular episode we just have to wait and see ultimately what some of these things are from a narrative standpoint 
standpoint and do they tie in and what some of them are from a thematic standpoint and do they tie in and I'm sure we'll continue that discussion of narrative versus theme as we really get into this feedback here before we do that Josh how can people subscribe to what we're doing plenty of ways you can go to postshowrecaps.com slash leftovers iTunes if you subscribe to us through iTunes any other podcatcher you can go to postshowrecaps.com slash feed slash leftovers Uh, all of your honest reviews and ratings would be extraordinarily helpful and appreciated by us Uh, we also appreciate all of the feedback we got for this week we're recording this earlier than we normally do uh, didgeridoo and you guys really responded to the call we have plenty of feedback to go through here so we really appreciate that if you missed getting your feedback in this time there's always next time and plenty of methods to do that as well we have an email address leftovers at postshowrecaps.com we have a feedback form at postshowrecaps.com slash feedback those are the two best ways to go. You can also hit us up on Twitter. Antonio is at AC Mazzaro. I am at Round Howard. There's always the comments section on postshowrecaps.com as well. Um, Antonio, do you want to just start hopping into this? I feel like we've got a kind of interesting place to begin with Alex Koontz, who has a little bit of a meditation on Kevin Sr. that might be flipping the script on how we should be viewing this episode. Um, Alex starts in by saying, Sr. is clearly upset with the way Matt is telling Junior's story. Do you think that that anger will also fall on Junior? Is Sr. going to be our primary antagonist once everyone gets to Australia? This was something, Antonio, that I hadn't really been thinking about even as a possibility until Alex wrote this in. Could we be having this episode here on The Leftovers with this introduction of, uh, of a song that's going to stop the rains and a man who fervently believes that this is the way things are going based on really not a ton of evidence uh, other than a, you know Tony the Chicken pecking at a tape that had Itsy Bitsy Spider playing a song, uh, you know, playing the rains away from Kevin Sr. way back when? We are both speculating whether or not this guy is insane, if this guy is a madman. And this sounds diametrically opposed to the Kevinism spirituality that is starting to arise through Matt. Um, Do we think, knowing that Kevin and Nora are headed to Australia, that this could be a collision course between the Kevins and that this might set up Kevin Sr. as something of an antagonistic force? Not like an outright evil or bad guy necessarily, but an obstacle to overcome. It's there are very interesting. I wouldn't say characters are being put totally in opposition, but there are very interesting relationships being created. And I like that that question by Alex really starts to get at the nut of some of this stuff. Kevin Sr. and Kevin Jr. are oppositional in the fact that Kevin Sr. believes that he in particular has a has a purpose, that he's finding this path and that now, of course, he's going to put even more stock in it, that he just happens to stumble through the desert after all this crazy stuff and end up at the spot where these kids' bodies were found and this woman is looking for a savior and he arrives. And whether the end of the episode when he says, like, oh, you, you just found the wrong one, whether or not that means he thinks he's the one or Kevin Jr. is the one and he's buying in, there is Kevin Sr. fully buying into what's going on. We haven't seen the same from Kevin Jr. Jr. has seemed a little reluctant to believe it. I'm not saying that he's all out. And as a matter of fact, I think he's a little more in than we've been led to believe. Uh, he goes to burn the book, and he doesn't burn the book. Uh, he is, when Nora is breaking balls about the thing, holy balls, that is, Kevin is just laughing it off. But Nora seems to be the one that's most oppositional to it. So 
we have these people, and Nora herself, in fact, believes that she is cursed and that she is something. We had this great comment from Andy last week after our episode uh, with Nora and Marklin Baker and everything that happened in Don't Be Ridiculous. Andy said even among the viewers there's been a lot of talk and acceptance of the idea that there must be something special about Kevin, Kevin Jr., whether he's the Messiah or not. I haven't heard much consideration given to the idea that Nora could be cursed. It seems that we as viewers are more okay with believing that Kevin is blessed than we are believing that Nora is cursed. But is it possible that both these things are true or that both of them are false? And can they survive as a couple if both are true or if one is special and the other isn't? I get what we've seen makes Kevin seem uniquely special is largely because of the supernatural element. What makes Nora think she's cursed are things you could just write off as rare, statistically unlikely, but not mysterious. On the other hand, everything that has happened to Kevin has happened to someone or something else. The bird was buried alive and survived. The David Burton guy makes the same claims. Virgil said that both he and the tower guy went through the same process as Kevin did to remove an adversary. So while the elements were mysterious, Kevin is not uniquely special, just rare, just like Nora. And I think Kevin, this is me, I think Kevin Sr. is in a very similar position in that he's had some things happen to him. He's assigning value to them or not. And we as the audience are assigning value to them or in, I think, the case of most viewers of this episode, not. We are looking at what's happening with Kevin Sr. and seeing them not as senior moments. Uh, We had some great tweets from Cat Caps on Twitter about this incident. Not as senior moments. I mean, this guy clearly has a sound mind in many respects. He is able to put together a lot of information, the song line, the things that he's doing there. But he is also very clearly putting a lot of faith in stock Uh, and stock in these things like the tape, like seeing a chicken on a television, like all of these signs, quote unquote, that he's interpreting that have been presented to him. And I think even when you include Nora, we have three characters that have very different views of things that are happening. Nora can believe she's cursed, but also, on the other hand, think that the Kevin Messiah stuff is just a joke. Uh, Kevin Jr. can believe that it's uh, that it's, it's crap. This is dumb. I'm going to burn this book. I'm not going to sing karaoke. And yet you can see the begrudging acceptance of something starting to form around him. And Kevin Sr. seems to be willing to believe anything, even including uh, a, a bird pecking on his bag is a sign of a particular thing that has to cause him to uproot his life and go 4,000 kilometers across continents that are across the world from where he was. So these are three very different people, and I think they're going to end up in the same place. So of course they're going to be oppositional to each other. And of course, a lot of the drama over the context of the season isn't just going to come from the narrative situations they find themselves in, but it's going to come from the oppositional forces between the characters. A skeptic or someone who wants to not believe anything could be truly religious. Another person who believes out of hand that just about everything is truly religious or spiritual, that there's a sign to it. And then Kevin Jr. in the middle of that, who is his father on one hand, his lover on the other, and two very oppositional forces, neither of which want to believe that he's the Messiah. So, of course, those people are on a crash course. As to what Alex says about whether that makes Kevin Sr. the big bad, I think this show is a lot more nuanced than that. I don't think that even the antagonistic forces in this series, I think, have been more of questioning forces, not pure antagonists. Uh, Meg would beg to differ. Meg would beg to differ as we know. I beg to differ. She would make the differ as we know so far. Uh, we, I think, there is t- still some element. I don't know of that how story. much differing she's going to be doing any further from this point. Now that she's just like paced on the ground. 
Well, there are still elements of that story that we haven't seen told, and we talked about this a little bit uh, in earlier podcast episodes this season, and we won't get into it a ton here, but we don't know ultimately the history between Meg and Evie and how that all came together. Do we need to know it? Not necessarily, but that is some element of the Meg story and what the whole point was with the guilty remnant in Jarden and how that plan came together, what they did in the time they spent together, where it was formulated, all of that. We don't know the full details of that. We could see more Meg on this season of The Leftovers. And if we did, a flashback would make a ton of sense, uh, especially as she continues to perhaps influence the actions of our characters in this season uh, in the prime story. But I think she was oppositional to a point. But again, the guilty remnant, they were oppositional as a goal. And their goal was to get people to wake up and realize that what was going on needed to be acknowledged. And their opposition was trolling. They were the ultimate human trolls. And so in that regard, they were opposition for opposition's sake, but they certainly had a point. Do you think that the guilty remnant wore white robes to hide, hide uh, the jewels in their belly buttons? Oh, because they're trolls? Yes. Uh, and they, what about their hair, though? How come their hair wasn't on point? They dyed it. Oh, well, they did dye. Uh, it, uh, that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Ultimately... I don't know. We should probably uh, what we should do, Josh, I think, is we should try to track down uh, Liv Tyler and rub her belly <laughs> with animal crackers. Well? Yeah. Yes. With animal crackers. I, I think that'll go really well. Smashingly well. I think that will be well received by all parties. I think that will go poorly. That's a uh, very Kevin Senior action that we would yeah, take. It's yeah. like, well, we just uh, some guy on a podcast said it, so I had to go out and do it. Oh God! Uh, Nobody go find Liv Tyler and rub animal crackers on her belly. We are officially saying, do not do that. It's just, uh, yeah, we are definitely saying, do not do that. Uh, very clearly saying that, and I'm uh, emphasizing it by means of not winking and nodding, but by yes. saying, don't do it. Yeah, <laughs> stop uh, it. I, I <laughs> make to differ with your winking and nodding. The problem with all this stuff, and we're making jokes about it with the Liv Tyler of it all, but the problem is that we have characters on this show who are assigning said meaning and doing said crazy stuff in pursuance of uh, of pursuance of other things. Trent C. asked, how did Kevin Sr. make the leap from Itsy Bitsy Spider to the Australian song line? Yeah, to which I respond, did you not watch the episode? It was pretty clear. Yeah, right. No, uh, it wasn't queer at all. <laughs> Kevin Sr. Is, is a lunatic. Right, and this is what we're talking about. Like, just because he can memorize these things, he, he is an intelligent man, but the intelligence is in pursuance of a lot of strange things, uh, and he's feeling like he's on a very particular course in his sense for, sense for purpose, or his search for a sense of purpose. So, yeah, there are characters that are assigning meaning to random things, uh, and making these leaps, and uh, that's the, on the trolls. That's on the troll line. That's like that's the thing where, at some point, Kevin Junior or Kevin Senior are are both having these things happen to them in their life and doing or not doing something in in pursuit of that. And I think that it's fascinating to see that Kevin Senior is just plunging headlong into this stuff. Uh, in part because he said voices told him to do it, but in another part because. He feels like he, in particular, has some sense of purpose. What we saw from Kevin Sr. throughout the, the context uh, or the course of The Leftovers, and we see it in microcosm here, where we see him moments after the departure, essentially, while he's still wearing his police uniform, while he's still dressed in that garb, and while he is still adorned in that way and acting accordingly, he says, basically, moments after the departure happened, he started hearing voices. That's when it started for him. And then we know later he takes that uniform off at some point, runs naked through the streets of Mapleton, goes into a mental hospital. Throughout that stay in the mental hospital, 
he's interacting with Kevin Jr. and telling him he's meant to be part of it, that he tried to keep him out of it, but now he's in this thing. And we have all those stories, which I'm sure if they, they're relevant during this discussion, we'll get into them. But then in season two, he seems like a completely different man. He has got it together in season two, episode two. He has been released officially from the mental hospital. And he tells Kevin Jr. like, oh, the voices didn't stop. I just started listening to them. And now this is what we see. That, that That's what that looks like. He's in Australia literally painting himself up and dancing in the desert. Not necessarily the actions of a guy like Kevin Sr. who has it all together. So there's a lot going on here. Uh, the international assassin part of it plays in as well. Um, our Philly asked us, were you guys surprised we didn't see more of Kevin Garvey Sr.'s descent into madness post-departure? The opening shot of him standing amidst the chaos was quite striking and set up an ex- expectation for me that I'd see more about what led him here rather than hear him recount it. Conversely, I'm curious if you think his story revealed more than it should have. Does he lose some of his enigmatic charm after this episode? Where are you with that, Josh? Are are you thinking that Kevin Sr.'s story is still enigmatic and charming or or, or are you now basically just reading him as unfortunately a little touched? Well, I think, first of all, um, to our Philly's point about you know, we saw this, star, you know, this really stark image of Kevin Sr. standing in what appeared to be Mapleton, um, wearing yeah. what appeared to be a police uniform uh, as the departure had probably just broken out. Um, and I think that you can kind of fill in the gaps there. And we know a lot about Kevin Garvey Sr. You already mentioned, like, he started hearing the voices after the departure. And we we saw quite a bit of, you know, the institutionalized Kevin in season one. And we've heard from him throughout the show. So I think that, you know, you could do some gapping on your own there. The other piece of it, too, is this season would be 10 full episodes if it could be. You know what I mean? Like, the, if, if they had the budget to make 10 episodes... They would make 10 episodes. And if they had the budget to show you everything that Kevin describes in this episode, rather than just have it be a a Kevin Garvey senior monologue, I think that they probably would have gone that route. That would be my guess. I could be wrong because on the other hand, it's really amazing to give this incredible monologue to Scott Glenn. Apparently the longest monologue that Damon Lindelof has ever written, according to an interview Scott Glenn gave with my home base, The Hollywood Reporter. Um, so I liked all that. I was I was happy with how that all played out. I have no issue with how it played out, and especially when you consider the budget of it all. I think it makes sense. Um, does it take away any of his charm? No, I think his charm is fully intact. Like, I still find myself really just, like, smiling and intrigued by Kevin Sr. when he's, like, snacking on craft singles and reading Grace's, you know, like, private thoughts in her book. Uh, I I just, like, there was just the way that he was just, like, chewing on that cheese where he just, like, kind of, like, I don't know, he seemed like a little childlike. So yes. I think, you know, like all of the things that like I've always found fascinating about Kevin Sr., I think those are all still intact. And the other piece of it, too, is the central mystery of that character from the beginning has been like, is he actually hearing voices in his head that are from some sort of divine power? Or is he hearing voices in his head because he's losing his mind and he's sick? Um, and I think that question isn't gone. It's heightened. You know, the same question that has surrounded that character forever has not been answered. It has been heightened in an incredible way. Do I suspect that he's probably just a lunatic? That he's just somebody who is unfortunately very mentally ill, who is just sick and is following his sickness to a fruitless end? That would be my bet, ultimately. 
But this show is a show that takes place in a universe where 2% of the population suddenly disappeared. So I'm not closed off to biblical floods. That could be where we are driving. So I just don't know. But I do know that the question surrounding that character, it's not gone for me. It's only bigger. And that's exciting. Yeah, we talked a little bit uh, in previous episodes this season about how there are these religious parallels, right? We start the season with the Millerites, and we have the parallels of them looking for a particular sign or thinking a particular thing was happening and maybe misinterpreting or misunderstanding the messages they were receiving or pursuing messages which were honestly not, not wrapped up in anything spiritual and that were wrapped up in something more mental. We talked about how Reza Aslan, one of the or the uh, spiritual guru for the show, told the writer's room the fascinating story that they hadn't heard about how the prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, uh, was in a position where when he first heard these voices, he thought that he was crazy, uh, that he thought that it couldn't be that God was actually speaking to him, that there was something wrong. We had a great feedback email after last week's feedback episode, but before this one aired from John McDonald, who was the lead pastor at Restoration Covenant Church. I hope it's okay to mention your church's name there, John about how Reza Aslan is probably setting up and giving to them a lot of these spiritual parallels directly from the Bible, uh, and that there are things that we can track going forward if this is a Jesus narrative. I mean, this episode does begin with the song Personal Jesus, and that is sort of the mission statement for this episode. Whether or not Kevin Sr. is actually a spiritual figure, or whether he's on that quest and is interpreting the things that happen to him, there are perhaps parallels to be drawn. And I'm fascinated that we see a man stumbling throughout the desert, for example. The snake in and of itself is a very biblical metaphor, and it can mean lots of different things in the Bible. My understanding is, of course, you've got the serpent and the whole Adam and Eve story, and that's a very unfortunately satanic or devilish representation of the serpent. But I believe in the New Testament, there are representations of the serpent that talk about intelligence and that talk about different factors. So it's really hard for us to gauge ultimately what's happening there. But there are a lot of these things that are happening to senior, which can be in interpreted through a similar lens, like you might interpret a biblical or religious story. Yeah, we might uh, look at the situation and say, well, he's just crazy. That's all it is. He's hearing voices. And I think part of, as we were discussing, the larger impact of this episode in the course of this season is when we look back, when we know what the full story is, are we going to assign more value to some of the things that happened in this episode or not? Are the things that happened in the desert going to be able to be assigned some allegorical value from the Bible or from some other religious story or not? And I think that that is ultimately unclear. We had a comment from Andrew Rowe who said, I thought there were some parallels to be drawn between Matt and Senior's reference to the story of Abraham, who was willing to sacrifice his son, and the man on in on the hill or the desert who riddled us this, would you kill a baby if it would cure cancer? Maybe some foreshadowing to Senior sacrificing Junior to save the world. Could be nothing, but I think where there's smoke, there's businessman fire. There's a businessman on fire. Yes, man on fire. Is this is this what the story of the man on fire is? Is it part of the reference to what is ultimately that would you cure, cure, kill a baby if it would cure cancer? That's the fundamental underpinning of what could be happening with this flood narrative, that there could be some sacrifice on an individual level that needs to be made to save the larger populace. Well, uh, Could we see this going that way with Kevin Sr.? Well, I just started thinking about Kevin Sr. setting Kevin Jr. on fire and poor Kevin Jr. who just can't die surviving the thing, and now we've just got like a terribly burned Kevin Jr. to deal with for the <laughs> remainder of the leftovers. And now I'm getting flashbacks <laughs> 
to another HBO show that set its Jesus figure on fire and had him in uh, in total totally wrecked condition from that point forward. Some Jeremiah Cloutier flashbacks for you, Colin Stone. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, that would fit with this idea of is is senior going to be something of an antagonistic force that Alex right. Koontz proposed? Uh, if if senior thinks that he's the Messiah, if he thinks he's this world's personal Jesus, and he's the guy, and Kevin Junior isn't the main character of this story, he's a side character in senior's narrative. You could see something like that happening for sure. Well, there are different ways to interpret this. Of course, Thomas said with Senior telling the story of his journey, I expected his big reveal to be his conversation with Junior through the TV, but it was just the chicken story. Does Senior not remember? Also, I thought it was a good turn to show the self-immolation as a way for the Volkswagen man to escape this way of life. Buddhist monks have done this as a protest when others try to take their way of life away from them. And that's another way to read it, right? That it is, this isn't some biblical thing. This isn't some reference to Abraham or the killing of the baby, although I think there's some value in that, that this could be some, something thematic or there could be another representation. We also talked, Josh, a little bit, and I think we maybe dismissed it a little too much on Sunday night, that this particular incident with the Volkswagen man could be related to the microwave. We had the question from Alex Wilpon on Sunday night. Uh, we are getting into a position now where we look at this in maybe a different way. Uh, is there, Josh, anything to be said for the fact that this guy, uh, the Volkswagen man, was dressed like Mark Lynn Baker in the hotel scene? Suit, no shoes. Yeah, we talked about this a little bit before we came on the air as well, and I think you and I both agreed that uh, maybe we were a little more closed off to it on Sunday night than we are today, a couple of days later, that this could be one of those scenes that could have further clarity in the future. I think we were both a little concerned of like, uh, are we just getting Lindelof with this scene? Like, is this just here just like as a kind of weird thing? Uh, is this part of like the biblical journey for Scott Glenn's character that he's just wandering upon? Uh, like if we find out that this guy's last name is Bush, you know, <laughs> like burning <laughs> B- Bush with a CH, you know, is this, is this, Anheuser. Yeah. This is a burning Anheuser Bush. Uh, you know, I, I think that there there's value to that. If that's the only way that it's going, although there's also frustration involved with that potentially. Um, but it, there's, there's more there, of course, if it has some plot utility as well. And I think that you pointed out, the physical similarities between Mark Lynn Baker's character and this man who sets himself on fire. Yeah, it is there. We talked a ton on Sunday about how they're doing a lot of nonlinear storytelling this season, that things are happening in these point of view episodes that get filled in or we get more information in later point of view episodes from other characters. Like we know in this episode, for example, something ain't right with Matt. We saw him in an earlier episode with a nosebleed, Josh, and kudos to us for not going down any kind of uh, time travel holes uh, with that nosebleed. But now in this episode, we see what looks like a very sick Matt in the middle of the night. He is uh, seemingly wrapping himself in a blanket, very wet, uh, maybe has the chills. I don't know if the man's got the flu uh, and those are those are sweat. But it is not it does not look like a healthy mat in that scene. So I just feel like ultimately when we get a mat episode or we get more of a point of view that's going to give us the opportunity to tell that story. We're going to find out the details because we did the same thing with Kevin Sr. in this episode with the uh, Captain Kevin Kangaroo of it all. We did the stuff with Nora's cast where we saw it in episode one and then found out more about it in episode two. So I think we're jumping around. We're introducing mysterious things that happen in the context of 
of one episode that in a later episode are explained. And it just stands to reason that this could very well be the case with the Volkswagen guy. That, in fact, he, that they didn't take me could be related to his desire to be incinerated. And when he doesn't get it through the machine, he does it to himself. Uh, and I think that that's something we have to track. And as we do track that, we have to look at these other things with Kevin Sr. When we talk about nonlinear storytelling, I think a lot of people expected, as that beginning of that comment uh, from Thomas indicates, that we would get more or get a, a stronger confirmation about what was happening in International Assassin from Kevin Sr.'s point of view, and that we didn't ultimately get that in this episode. Sam J. said, was Kevin Sr. technically in the canonical universe of the hotel in International Assassin? If so, is God's tongue a way to reach or exist in the hotel universe? Josh, we talked a ton about this on Sunday. Uh, the fact that Kevin Sr. knows about the God's Tongue thing and Kevin Jr. also knows about it in the context of that particular episode. How would Jr. know about the God, this very specific high-end uh, designer hallucinogen? How would Jr. know about that as a thing unless it's real? Uh, where are we with that, Josh, at this point? Is that, is that something that is – we're still on point with that, that, there's, that this is an acknowledgment of the spiritual in the show, that there is something mysterious there? I think it's hard to refute that, at least in the universe of The Leftovers. I, th I think like to, to, to figure out exactly how Kevin Garvey Jr. would know that his father is on God's tongue – while he's at the International Hotel, uh, you know, without having had some sort of conversation with him before where maybe Senior called Junior's like, yo, I'm tripping on God's tongue. It's crazy. Right. And he's like, all right, thanks, Dad. Like, you know, like just like ha hanging up on a dad drunk dial. Sure. Uh, you know, like I, I don't Who know. Who hasn't done that? Yeah, I don't. I just I, I don't know. Like, I, I feel like. I feel like this is a show that asks you to, you know, suspend some belief from time to time. Uh, it does try to to open things up to possible, you know, like different possible interpretations, so that you're not fixed on any one viewpoint. And I strongly suspect that this show will end similarly. That whatever happens in the in the plot of this season, by the end of it, that there will be multiple ways to explain whatever you just saw. Um, with that being said, my personal belief. And I think it's really difficult to argue against is that, yeah, something special is happening with Junior and he is able to see some certain some stuff. And he is actually able to go into this other world where he's connecting with the dead and somehow can hang out with his dad across the world, across planes of existence through a television set where he is seeing the two weeks that Senior has somehow forgotten. Um, I should probably take somehow out because I think it's fairly clear how he forgot those two weeks. <laughs> he was tripping on God's tongue. Um, so, yeah, I think that, yeah, I think that I think seniors in the canonical International Assassin Hotel for sure. Uh, do you disagree? No. And I don't think they call it tripping when you're on God's tongue. I think they call it getting licked. But uh, but yeah, I <laughs> get licked. I I think everybody get licked. Yeah, I do think that there is just an unexplained element there. And I think like we've talked about with the greater context of this episode, it's one of those things where we may get more information filled in we may not uh, and your mileage may vary on whether or not kevin senior in that hotel was doing something legitimate or not 
as we pointed out, and as we had a question from Trent C., is does this confirm the, the real supernatural elements? And I think you're eloquently listing there why it could. Uh, we had another comment from Yaya. Yaya said, and Yaya sends a lot of great feedback in, by the way. Yaya said, during my rewatch of some of episode three, I noticed that during Scott Glenn's monologue when he's with Christopher Sunday, the background music, as he recounts his tale about what he's been doing in Australia, is classical music with strings. You don't hear that often in The Leftovers, except for International Assassin, when Kevin is in the hotel. I think this is a clue that Kevin Sr.'s account of what happened during his first few weeks is not a retelling of facts, but is some combination of reality and fantasy. The fact that he mentioned some of what Kevin Jr. experienced is probably just due to Sr. mixing up of some of what he read in Matt's book, which would include the details that Michael told him about the hotel. Sr. even says he didn't remember almost anything for two weeks, so I don't think his account is very credible, especially when he basically was on a prolonged acid trip. Uh, And I think that there... But does he say much that lines up with Junior's account, you know, that lines up with Junior's experience in the International Assassin Hotel? Or does he really only talk about God's tongue? Like, that's the only connective thread. Well, that and that there's a he says that there's a smoldering mattress, right? right? He wakes up in a hotel room in Perth, which is something that happened on the TV, uh, that there's a smoldering mattress beside him. He says there are white guys in the room that are painted up. If you go back and watch International Assassin, I don't think those look like white guys. Uh, but I, you know, I don't know if that matters or not, but it does seem like it's not the same thing. That said, what he talks about when he wakes up and sees Tony the chicken that is not meant to replicate the experience that he actually had or didn't have when he talked to Junior. He's saying the mattress was smoldering, not on fire. And I think that that's something different than uh, that. That's different than ultimately what we see in uh, in International Assassin, which the thing is on fire. And the fact that it's on fire seems to be very relevant to whether or not he's able to get through the TV or not. So I think he's earlier on in whatever ritual he's completing in International Assassin. And that when he wakes up and recounts the aftermath of the wake up in this story, he's later on in that story because the mattress is not on fire. It's smoldering. So So that part of International Assassin has already happened. And instead of having people who are uh, not these crazy white hippies in the room with him, he has what looks to be more aboriginal people in the room with him. So I don't ultimately know whether or not we're meant to say what was going on in that room. But I do know that I think that what he recounts the story of Tony the Chicken is meant to be after whatever would have happened with Junior. He doesn't seem to remember any of the details of that. And yeah, he may have gotten some information about the hotel from the Book of Kevin, but that does not change the fact that Kevin himself, Junior, did not know about God's tongue as far as we know. So that's something that's just hanging out there. Uh, As we saw at the beginning of this season, when we saw uh, Lori and John with the reading, the psychic reading, right? We saw that things that looked mysterious at first glance, and in this case, that would be Isaac the Psychic's original read that Meg's mom had walnuts in her salad or didn't want walnuts in her salad, could be something that has a more, uh, let's say, less spiritual uh, source, that maybe that was something that he pulled up on the internet somewhere, or he, it was a detail that he did found in background research, like we see John and Lori actually doing in the course of the first episode. Sometimes we don't get those answers in the moment. Sometimes they come much later. The God's tongue thing may never come, Josh. It may be one of those things that is left to the imagination, like much of what's happened 
with Kevin in International Assassin. I do think we will see ultimately, though, by the end of this season, some more information about the hotel. What is causing these sorts of things? Uh, what level is it operating? Does it matter? Does it not matter? Etc. Uh, and so I, I don't know what to make. Ultimately, this is a long way of saying I don't know what to make of the story of the car in the desert and the burning man. Uh, but I do know that that happened like that or maybe not like that is a big debate, which we'll get into uh, momentarily. Uh, how much should we really believe of what? What's happening to Kevin Sr. in this episode? Well, speaking of the man who burned himself alive and set his car on fire, please don't set any True Cars on fire. True Car being the sponsor of this podcast. Let's take a moment to stop down and thank True Car. Antonio, there's something about True Car that a lot of people don't know. Um, did you what know, is that, Josh? Did you know that using True Car can also help you buy a used car? I had I well I had I had heard tell of this but tell me more. All right. Well, in fact, there are over 700,000 pre-owned vehicles available from True Car certified dealers nationwide. Whether you are looking to buy new or used, you can get upfront pricing information that empowers discounts off the list price for used cars and a better buying experience, not burning experience through our True Car certified dealer network. Uh, there are over 700,000 pre-owned vehicles available from True Car certified dealers nationwide. You'll see what other people paid for the car that you want so you can know what a fair price is and you will feel as confident as Kevin Sr. Antonio. When True Car, with True Car, you can connect with a local certified dealer of your choosing so you can enjoy a quick, easy buying experience. By using True Car, you can easily find the new or used car that you want. So when you're ready to buy a new or used car, visit True Car to enjoy a more confident car buying experience. How about that, Antonio? What do you feel about that? I feel great about it. Uh, I feel like we're used car salesmen now, and we need an inflatable at our used car lot, and I'm going to recommend we get Gary Busey. We are going down the true car line. That is exactly what is happening. Right now. <laughs> uh, and and that, is, uh, that is pertinent because... Th- <laughs> It's just it's just so odd this this going down the line like this thing that Kevin Sr. is up to. It is it really does seem random. And I like that this episode goes out of its way with that great monologue from Scott Glenn to Christopher Sunday to show just the randomness of it, to show the leap that is required for Kevin Sr. to think that not only should he be in Australia at all because the voices told him to go there. But that he's, as he's going to an opera house, someone says, do you want to talk to God? He goes on a two-week drug trip, wakes up, sees a chicken on TV, goes across the country again to visit that chicken. Uh, it sounds like uh, we had Alex Wilpon observe that this sounds like an episode of The Amazing Race, Josh. He's going all over Australia and completing these random tasks uh, with local well-knowns. And yet here he is going back across the country, meeting a psychic chicken uh, and getting this chicken to peck a tape in his bag, which he then plays the tape, which he then leaps to interpret means he has to learn a song line. Uh, Alex Coons wanted to know, what percentage of this episode do you think was a hallucination? Is there a point where a narrator becomes too unreliable? I'm wondering about your take on that, Josh. Did you think any of this episode was meant to be read as a hallucination? Um, well, if your interpretation is that Senior is just losing his mind, then that's not impossible. We did talk through the the possibility that you and I are... I'm still not on board with that Senior is hallucinating Grace's children by the arc and that those people that he's talking to when he comes outside of Grace's house for the first time aren't actually there and only exist inside of Senior's head. Please no, um, but it's not impossible. And I think especially for a character who we know has heard voices in the past, and if you, if you interpret that as uh, a form of, of sickness, um, 
and that's something that's going to that that could possibly be projected visually when you're spending so much time with the character as your POV character in a given episode that I think that it does behoove you to look at things skeptically, to look at things cautiously, to look at things as possible delusion rather than fact. Um, but I don't know what I would say was just an outright hallucination. Um, no, there, there's a lot of weird stuff happening, especially near the end of this episode. I think it's more about like interpreting things that have actually physically happened. I think that that's, that's the leftovers is, is sweet spot rather than like straight up delusion. It's more like your delusion of grandeur based on what you've physically seen. Yeah, and we don't have to be fair. We don't have a ton of uh, we don't have a ton of clarity. Like they're not leaning into anything being clearly hallucinogenic. Uh, he mentions taking a hallucinogenic drug in the episode, of course, and we see that his perspective on what happens there is completely lost, and that he's assigning a lot of spiritual value to one incident that resulted as a result of that. Uh, let's call it uh, licking uh, instead of tripping. Uh, and so we know that that is part of this episode. It's not happening in the context of this episode, but it's happening in the discussion of the events of the episode. Contextually in the episode, what we see is he's wandering around in the desert, uh, not not in the way that you might when you take peyote or not, not altogether different. Uh, when he's wandering through the desert, he sees a man that's burning up, uh, and we don't know what to make of that. It does seem crazy in the moment. Uh, he has an encounter with a snake that not only is uh, perhaps biblical in nature, but also connects to the encounter with the snake that the cavewoman had in season two's beginning episode. So, yeah, Justin is- Curry wrote in about that and said, "Do you guys think there's any connection to Kevin Senior getting bit by a snake and the cavewoman from season two from the season two premiere getting bit by a snake as well?" Yeah, in the in the words of the Big Lebowski or Walter Sobchak, face it, dude, there isn't a literal connection, uh, but there maybe is a connection. Like, there, you can't have somebody getting bit by a snake and, and showing the way they treat that snake and the way they kill it and have it be so similar without there being at least a thematic connection. And I think ultimately when you talk about the hallucinogens, there are, is talk of them in this episode. And whether or not that's what we're meant to literally believe is happening or whether that's thematically what we're meant to believe is happening, there is a lot of Kevin Sr. waking up, passing out, getting up, passing out. He gets shot by a trank dart in this episode, Josh, and he wakes up. He takes a bunch of drugs in this episode and passes out and wakes up. He's passing out and waking up at very different times, multiple times ultimately, near the end of this episode. And when he's passing out and waking up, he's experiencing these weird things. One of the times he wakes up, uh, he sees a woman killing a man. Uh, one of the times he, he wakes up, he sees a group of people building an ark. Uh, and so when he's passing out and waking up, how much of this is happening? How much is it not? We don't ultimately know. The people building the ark is the interesting part of it. Uh, Yaya pointed out that they were doing so out of material from the chapel. The chapel was once fully built based on what we see in the photo album, but in present day, it looked like it was halfway deconstructed and was rather dilapidated. Someone is preparing for a departure of some kind and even giving away all the possessions they don't think they'll need. Uh, Grace was packing up all the shoes of her kids into a big donation box, just like uh, the end of the world woman, uh, Yaya says. Also, it's interesting that the small Quaint chapel looked very similar to the chapel of the Millerites. So, Josh, it isn't necessarily that these things are hallucinations. It could just be that we don't really understand where they are from a narrative.
narrative standpoint, thematically, they land, as Yaya is pointing out, uh, and as uh, Justin Curry is pointing out. But thematically, they're there. But narratively, we maybe need to find out more. That these people building this boat, are, are is this just that these people are going to be likely converts to Kevinism because they're looking for something to believe in? And they, independent of Kevin Sr.'s own madness about a flood, believe a flood is coming? Yeah, I th- I think that if we're if we're really embarking on Kevinism, we need disciples, right? These right. could be very easy candidates for that. Sorry for saying the word candidate. <laughs> oh yeah, you almost triggered me. Uh, we'll get into another trigger perhaps candidate in this episode. People. Yes, uh, we'll get into that. Uh, but we we almost have to. We can't. We I'm I, like I said, I'm very shocked we used the resistance that we used with the nosebleed. Uh, but we have to get into some of the discussions of Lost in this particular episode because I think we are impacted by the events of Lost when we analyze what happens in an episode like this. And I do think that that's a huge part of it. We are processing our own stuff. Uh, certainly, that's what's happening with Lindelof writing the show, as you've indicated. But we too are in a position where we're where we're triggered and where we're in a very particular uh, way of thinking because of things that have... We're not analyzing this show in a vacuum, Josh, which would be weird because, as we talked about, it had to be a pretty big vacuum. Very big vacuum. You and I are both larger men. It would be hard to fit inside of one vacuum just by ourselves. I would love to be in there with you. It would be so fun. It'd be cozy. It'd be tight. What would we do? Like, play 20 questions? That would be fun. That would be at least one of the things that we would have to do in order to stay sane. Oh, what else? I like this idea that there would be some sort of spiritual quest that we'd have to undergo to get out of the thing. Uh, so that's uh, that's a different episode. We don't have to talk about that. But yeah, it is just it's a lot. It's a, it's a lot, Josh, uh, to discuss <laughs> and to really take take in because so much of where this episode was trading was in the thematic realm. And yet I think these thematic scenes like the people building the ark also are going to have more of a narrative connection. And that's why I think we can really not evaluate everything that happened in this episode until we see more about where this story is going. Where do you want to go next? Do you want to talk some Chris Sunday? Do you want to go to Chris Sunday school? Let's go to Chris Sunday school. All right. This is from Patrick. Patrick wrote in and said, Kevin senior says to Chris Sunday that he needs to know the last song from his song line so that he can stop the rain. Chris Sunday responds by saying that his song brings the rain, does not stop it. Could it be that Kevin Sr. has already done his part to stop the flood by falling onto the last man who knows the song that brings the rain, inadvertently killing him, but in turn stopping the rain from ever happening? Um, when no flood comes <laughs> later in the season, are we going to retroactively point to this moment as to why there was no flood, Antonio? <laughs> Boy, wouldn't that be? We just, killed Christopher uh, Sunday and we stopped the flood. The whole catastrophe was averted in the third episode of the season. Let's put it this way: if no flood happens, we could possibly assign that value, right? Like, <laughs> That's so funny. Could, there's there's no way that we there's no way to disprove it. Uh, right. You can't you can't prove a negative. Uh, so that would be that would be something maybe we could look back on and say, well, you know, there was going to be yeah. a flood, but it was I'm stopped. O- I'm officially rooting for there to be no flood this season, specifically so we can now call Christopher Sunday the big bad of the leftovers, who was just flattened in episode three of season three five seconds after meeting the guy. Well, it's funny because he's on a rooftop there, right? Uh, and that he's going up on a rooftop uh, to fulfill a prophecy. And Yaya pointed that out, that there are these parallels with the beginning of the season uh, where the, you know, the end of the world woman is up there on top of the roof uh, and feels like she has to be there to fulfill some part of a thing. Uh, and Yaya said, if anything, I feel like that's showing us that Kevin Sr.'s prophecy, like the Millerites, is nothing but bunk and it won't come to pass. But Josh, that could have been it. That could have been it. That could have been the whole thing. He needed to go up on the roof to end it. 
that would be amazing. <laughs> it would just be, it'd be incredible. It'd make this whole episode so worthwhile. I don't know if worthwhile is the word I would use. Maybe, maybe not, but it would make this episode hysterical. Uh, I don't know. I loved Christopher Sunday. Uh, oh, so I, did I. It's such I mean, a shame if he's dead. I mean, yeah, I guess we don't, we don't see the death, but you know, no. I, uh, what reason does this guy have to lie uh, you know, maybe not. It may not be a lie. It could be one of those rumor. telephone. Yeah, it could be one of those telephone game situations where you hear so. For crying out loud, Josh! Nowadays, that when something happens that actually happens in the news, we get fake reports for for hours because people don't have the facts correct. Yeah, but you and I agree completely that we're going to go back to the hotel at some point this season, right? Yeah, like we're, we're going to com- see the hotel. We're again. completely on board with that. So anybody who has died on this show can show up there. Like you could totally see Christopher Sunday at the hotel. Like that is entire possible and that would be further proof that junior is going somewhere and he's meeting people that he has no business meeting uh or like bumping shoulders with people that he has no business bumping shoulders with if it's like a chance encounter um so i think i would be shocked if we never saw this character again dead or alive yeah maybe kev maybe junior goes to the hotel meets concierge uh christopher sunday yes christopher sunday teaches him he, a wor- song. he, he fills in for virgil on sundays yes he fills in for virgil on sundays yes uh, and he also fills in for david burton and runs the karaoke and teaches <laughs> kevin a song he's got the words on a screen there and kevin is, oh. is reading them out yeah and he learns the song and he comes back and sings it i mean that's kind of funny <laughs> like that's a funny <laughs> that's a funny gag but there's actually something there like i mean yeah you pointed out that that the senior is basically singing a song to save the world or thinks he has to do that and we've almost seen junior do that very thing sing for his life yes yeah so we have seen that and if let's just indulge poor senior for a second old man senior for just a moment old Old man man senior Senior. yeah so let's just indulge him for a for a hot minute and say that he's right and he does need christopher sunday's song in order to save the world and he just killed that guy and he's the only person who knows that song isn't it a wonderful thing that we do know another Kevin who can visit the afterlife and glean information from people? Potentially, Junior could grab that song. Yeah, uh, and we had the adversary in the International Assassin be Patty, somebody who had been stuck on Kevin and who Kevin had to go into the in-between, if you will, and essentially free her soul, push her down a well, hear her confession, listen to her deepest, darkest problems, and ease her into the next life is ultimately what he did in that episode. And he emerged free of Patty. Uh, but maybe there is some greater antagonist that he could see in the hotel, and it could just be people all the people who have died without some resolution all of these things that's who ultimately can be maybe saved by the prevention of the flood like there is some element to that where if we go back to the hotel who are we seeing what's the adversarial relationship that's how i expect you get like your evie resolution for example that's a perfect example or meg right right, like or meg like there could be some element of that we had patty being the the guilty remnant sort of willing participant in her own demise uh, and Meg sort of gleefully greeting the uh, the drone strike by talking about Siegfried and Roy's Tigers at the beginning of this season. So it could be Meg. It could be Evie. There could be some other element of that story that you could tell in a hotel scenario or we could be bringing Patty back. But regardless, uh, the the and I think now that it's May, we could be bringing Patty back because it's going to be May uh, and we're bringing Patty back. Uh, so ultimately, because, yeah. yeah, that could 
could be happening. Uh, I, I don't know. I think ultimately, though, we could be entering a scenario where by having that be an element of this world, we could be dealing with people from the Christopher Sundays to the Megs and the Evies in that hotel. And I don't know what the God's Tongue connection is. Uh, we had some questions really about whether or not the God's Tongue thing is meant to suggest that that is a way to connect to the international assassin world, that this is another portal. Oh, wow. Uh, what do you think about that? Well, if this, we could find more God's tongue, could we get back to the hotel? Yeah, I mean, like, this is starting to come together a little bit. So, like, if we find more God's tongue and we give that to Senior, and if we know that God's tongue brought Senior to the hotel last time, and if we send Junior to the hotel and he finds Christopher Sunday there and he brings him back to his room and turns on the TV and has Sunday teach Senior the song while Senior's tripping on God's tongue. You oh, could, wow. You can, like, see all of that coming together so easily. Yeah, he'd have to have a chicken peck it out for him if Senior was going to remember it. <laughs> yes. But yeah, other than that, perfect. Yeah, you're right. That that is a that the door is open, whether it's through a weird television static scenario or not. The door is open, and look, it is not uh, Kevin Junior and Senior together sharing a song which stops rain. That's something we hear on tape in this episode. So it wouldn't be without the realm of possibility or even the things that have been introduced in the context of the show for that to happen. Uh, it is uh, it is it is different. It is unusual that this uh, International Assassin Hotel is part of the the, the story of this uh, of this show, because it does give us the opportunity to do something like that uh, and to predict all that playing out. And of course, if that is something that they pull off. Kevin, Kevin Jr. is probably going to buy into Kevinism even more, right? Yeah, you would think so. He'd be like, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, this is definitely a thing that's happening. Well, and that's going to push Nora away even more, and then maybe that's how we end up in the Sarah Durst scenario. So there are these things uh, that when we bring these characters to Australia, we can bring to a head, and this could certainly be one of them. All right, so we have about 10 or 15 minutes left. What do you want to get into here as we're starting to get into the final stretch here of this feedback show? There are a lot of parallels that we can discuss uh, between what's happening ultimately between these characters. And we started a little bit discussing the triumvirate of Nora uh, and Kevin Sr. and Kevin Jr. And how it's interesting, as we talked on Sunday, Christopher Sunday. about how Nora is willing Christopher Sunday, about how Nora is willing to accept that she's cursed, about how Kevin Sr. is willing to accept that all these things have meaning, and yet neither of them seem to be willing to assign the same sort of value to Kevin Jr. Our Philly said, I sense an imminent collision between an unstoppable force and an immovable object in Nora and Grace. Nora often goes to her darkest place when confronted with those who have seemingly been able to reconcile their grief. I can't help but think that if Grace is presented with the real deal savior, Kevo, and she finds her faith again because of him, it will trigger Nora in a terrible way. Is Grace the unsuspecting angel of death hovering over Kevin and Nora's tenuous relationship? Will she drive Nora to the microwave? I think perhaps literally not drive. That would be a horse. But maybe <laughs> will she push? Will she push Nora to the microwave? Yeah. Um. I hope not. And my my reason for that is, like, I'm good with Kevin Sr. being much more of a focus character this season because he's somebody who's been on the show from the start. Grace has just arrived. She's only been in two episodes, barely. Um, I'm cool with her being a, a figure on the show. I am very cool with her being important on the show, such as it relates to the Kevins and the the development of Kevinism uh, and anything that is going on in that realm. But in, in terms of her being... A wedge, you know, being like the wedge between Nora and Kevin. I don't know. That would feel a little 11th hour to me. How do you feel about that? 
the the fact of the matter is as you pointed out the people building the ark the fact that grace playhold has been willing to kill in in pursuance of her desperate desperate search for some spiritual meaning the fact that she is a spiritualist believed that it was the rapture that occurred and because of the fervent stridency of her belief did not even look for her kids and they ended up dead and she's now come to a point where she's regretting all that and is ready to just say I did it I'm done I'm turning myself in I'm going to fall on my sword here I've done some crazy things because I was sure that there was spirituality involved and then this guy turns up who by the way has a lot of crazy tales about spirituality that are really hard to once you look at him through that lens assign other meaning to it seems like she's going to be perhaps a willing disciple of Kevinism as you're pointing out and as as we've observed and yet it does seem a little 11th hour for that conversion to be the central uh, conflict of this final season. I think it's better that there is just a thematic conflict overall between these characters. Uh, our good buddy, our Philly, who sent in a lot of great feedback we missed last week because it was a little we recorded a little early, but got some in this week. He pointed out uh, the great element of what was going on with Mark Lynn Baker and how he emphatically conveyed to Nora that the people who've embraced the Swedish portal gun technology aren't suicidal or hapless suckers. I thought it was an interesting commentary on how logic, education, and the like are feeble protections from the act of living life. No matter how much we reason, no matter how much reason we apply to try to resolve our inconsolable grief and fear when we face loss, we are left without clear answers. Baker justifies the actions of these clearly desperate people who I think it's worth noting place their faith in science to reconcile their struggles. Great stuff. So we have, as Philly rightly observed, people who are willing to go to great lengths, people who are incredibly intelligent, who are of sound mind, who are embracing science in this case to look for answers. And of course, there are going to be people in that same realm who are intelligent people who are capable of making uh, intelligent choices who embrace faith and who do things in pursuance of that. And of course, Nora is right at the intersection point of those two things. She was pretty impacted when she heard about the the demon as when she heard about the lens thing, when the spirituality came into it, the demon Azrael, she was out. She laughed it off. But until then, I think she was a little concerned. And similarly, the science thing, we have been concerned. The science of the microwave thing is persuasive enough to her that maybe it's something that she's interested in. Uh, I rewatching uh, noticed that Nora tells her kids before the departure that it's very important to say their prayers. So it's it's clear that the departure itself has taken away something from Nora that was part of her life before. I mean, she was raised in a church like that was something that had meaning to her and that Matt, of course, took on and gave a lot more meaning and that Nora has run away from. And so there maybe is some simmering element of Nora, which has a spiritual thing and wants to believe and maybe placing that faith in science is the intersection of that. But it certainly seems that Grace is a little oppositional to that in that she's willing to go all in in pursuance of this spirituality. And she's met a fellow traveler in Kevin Sr. for sure. Well, speaking of Kevin Sr., this is a dynamic that I'm really curious about. This is from Dave Baker. Please discuss the relationship between Kevin Sr. and Matt. Are they friends? Are they business partners out of convenience or a common goal? Do they like each other? Um, My question for you, Antonio, kind of to, to start riffing on that, 
is we saw the return of the the National Geographic magazine this week. Um, that's from the first season of the show. We see Kevin Sr. putting money in a page. These are callbacks to season one, I believe, but I don't have like the immediate recall. I'm, I'm going to try and do a full rewatch before the finale. We'll see if I can fit it in. But I know that you have gone back and you've rewatched everything really recently. Can you kind of reset that for us at all? Like, what was the what, what was the significance of Kevin Sr. putting money in a page of the book of Kevin this week? Does that tie back to what their relationship used to be? Not particularly. There was in season one, in Two Boats in a Helicopter, we agreed, I think, the, the episode of this series that was most like Crazy White Fella Thinking, in, that, in which Matt himself underwent a lot of Crazy White Fella Thinking uh, when he was associating a lot of what he was saying with this message that he needed to pursue a certain thing. He was following birds around town, literally, to gamble. He needed money to save his church, and at some point, Senior must have told him, listen, if you ever need it, I've got a stock for you. So he goes to the backyard of the senior junior house, digs up a jar of empty peanut butter, and there's a big wad of cash in there with a note. That is the note about the judge who caused Matt and and Mary to have the uh, horrible problems they're facing with Mary's paralysis to begin with on the departure date. This judge was driving a car. He poofed. He lifted, as they put it, uh, and he disappeared. His car caused the accident, which caused the trauma to Mary. That's what put Matt on this path, where he had to discredit all of the departures as not good people. And in doing so, and in trying to seek that discrediting, uh, he really put himself on blast with a lot of people and alienated himself. And including, I think, with uh, the authorities in town, we see when Kevin Jr. first meets Matt, which is when we first meet Matt, he's trolling people at the departure day event. And it's not good for Jr. These people don't like Matt doing this. And it's, it's literally trolling with the potential for violence that Matt undergoes. And he later suffers in episode three. So this is a thing where Matt has put himself uh, against the police chief and forces like that by going out and doing these things which are causing jeopardizing incidents to happen. And he basically, the note that Senior leaves Matt says, you deserve this, Rev. Uh, and Matt at one point says to tell Junior to tell Senior, you guys are off the hook. Uh, and I don't know exactly what he means by that, if there is another incident which we'll ever find out about, or if he just means generally. Like, listen, you don't have to worry about keeping the peace. Like, there isn't a rhyme or reason to this thing. I don't know. But there is that relationship with them. When Senior goes missing uh, in Solace for Tired Feet, Season 1, Episode 7, when he escapes from the, the mental place, uh, Junior puts together that he's probably gone to hide out with Matt, that Matt has probably been his refuge in this moment and Matt is a guy who even though even this season we've seen Matt is willing to lie Uh, he is not a guy who's going to be honest even with the people in his life he wasn't ultimately immediately up front with Nora about the pillar guy Uh, and he was trying to create this religious story and and was willing to lie in pursuance of that so and he was like I didn't lie but we know (laughs) the truth really underrated Matt impression I think omission is commission I'd love for you to do a full podcast in Matt voice I'm not here to do that. <laughs> Antonio Mazzaro. Oh, my God. Do you know what time it is, Josh? Yeah, uh, I don't know. Like, that is something where where intentional Matt's seen. Yeah, that is something where ultimately Matt has always been 
in some ways oppositional to the realistic forces that the police elements of the Garvey family have to deal with. But the more he gets onto this spiritual path, the more we thought he and Senior are are like-minded or are kindred spirits. And, and yet in this episode, I love the fact that we see them completely at odds. Uh, we thought, Josh, in speculating how we could get to this point where these women were killing a Kevin just because they thought he was the Kevin, that Senior and Matt had been working to spread Kevinism and that it had taken hold in Australia. We've come to find out that couldn't be more uh, more false, that yeah. they are, act, in fact, directly oppositional, that Senior has thrown the book of Kevin away and places very little stock in what Matt is doing. And we see a lot of FUs being exchanged back and forth, which is great because those are callbacks to people saying that to Matt throughout. And Matt is now throwing that back at the Garveys. So it seems like that with all of them, with Junior, Senior, and Matt, there has always been a tenuous relationship because Matt is so problematic in so many ways. And yet when these people want to delve into what Matt is doing, I think he's going to be there with open arms. I think he'd love to bring Kevin Sr. and Jr. into the fold of Kevinism. And if they get on board, they're going to be they're going to be spiritual allies for sure. I like that they're oppositional until they do that, though. Their goals are they're very similar, and yet they're very different in terms of how they're playing out. Um, Sam Salmon had written in and said, could it be that Meg is the third party that Mark Lynn Baker spoke of? We talked a little bit before about how we could possibly see Meg or Liv Tyler later in the season. If she did get killed in the drone strike, we could potentially see her at the hotel. Are we at all open to the possibility that the drone strike was not as it appeared, that that faction of guilty remnants somehow survived, got squirreled away, had some sort of backup plan, some sort of whatever? Could she be involved whatsoever in anything that's going on with the microwave machine? I think that it seems more likely that there is there is something in the story that we're familiar with with the microwave machine that isn't her. Uh, I do think we could see her again this season. It stands to reason that you've got characters that you're bringing back like the BBA. Why wouldn't you bring Meg back? We already saw her in this season, of course. Uh, we speculated at the time, would that be all we saw of Evie? Would that be all we saw of Meg? What elements of their story do we still need to tell? We've talked that through. Uh, as far as her connection to the microwave, I don't see that as as literally. Yeah, I think I that's more differ, likely. If that's your interpretation, you meg to differ. That's hilarious. Yes, uh, they, there's no stealing beauty going on here. Uh, we're we're not setting any empire records. Uh, ultimately, I think that that we have a situation where something is coming to bear from that. We talked a ton about Armageddon, this. Armageddon, perhaps. I'm sorry. Armageddon could be with. Coming to, oh, Armageddon sorry, could be what's happening. Oh, yes, I see Liv what's Tyler happening there. Yeah, I see what you did. Jokes, and I, I was late, but I couldn't stop. see what you did there. Yeah, no, better late than never. Uh, so ultimately, do, I <laughs> I got one. That was a good one. That was good. 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 I'm not sure. I, yeah, I just don't know. Patty leavening myself on the back right now. <laughs> I just ultimately don't don't know uh, where that's going to come in, uh, what her dogma is, uh, if that's part of what she's ultimately you keep bringing undergoing. Up the dogs, I don't know why. Oh. <laughs> sorry, Caleb. Uh, sorry, Beast Mode Dog Boy. That was an accident. Yeah, I don't know where that's going to tie in. I think it's more likely that the machine is tying into the pseudoscience religious elements that we've heard from or seen, like we saw in last season in Lens, uh, that it's possible those people are more of related. We have some feedback. Uh, people believe maybe that there is more of a direct connection to those people, that, that those people who were calling, uh, calling Nora on the phone last season are directly the people that 
they're making the microwave machine, that this has been something they've been working on the whole time. I think we need more information about those people to draw that completely with clarity. But I yeah, think, I think it's a, lot in of, that realm. a lot of people have been saying that, oh, God, it's Sonya Walger. She's back. That's the same exact person who called Nora back in season two is the person who calls her at the end of episode two here in season three. Uh, we were batting that back and forth a little bit before we came on the feedback show this week because we didn't address that last time. Um, I don't think it's the same person. I feel like my ear is trained for like any lost character, especially a major one. I don't think that that's Penny. Not Penny's voice. <laughs> Not Penny's voice. Write that on your hand, Josh, and, and hold it up to the Skype screen right yeah, now, please. Yeah, you got it. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't know. I just think that there is... A possibility that that's the connection and not that Meg is connected to the machine. Uh, not that it's Meg against the machine, but that there is uh, that there's not a connection there. I do think that there is more of that story to be told, as we've said uh, and as we've talked about at length. I don't think it's going to come in via the machine. But there are those elements there. There are those elements of people willing to die in pursuance of a cause. Uh, and the people that go into the machine seemingly are willing to do that. Those cult notes, if you will, those uh, holding up the newspaper, they do read like suicide notes. Uh, whether or not they're of sound mind or not, we see them essentially with their last words before they're zapped. And they're zapped with no promise that they're going to come back. This isn't a round-trip ticket from what I understand, Josh. round-howard trip ticket. Yeah, th there are some suggestions that some of the people did it, but I don't know that there are suggestions that every single one of these people is doing yeah, it. Yeah, I think that that's right. So I don't know ultimately where they're going in, in terms of what that's, uh, whether that's part of the, the, the whole cyclical part of the story or not. Uh, we had a hilarious comment from Andy, uh, and Andy said that, these people have been working maybe since the departure first happened. They're using pseudoscience and bizarre religious ideals. They profess an understanding. They use science to measure people's quote-unquote levels. They claim that people were inhabited by demons after a big event. They invent their own terminology. This is the de departure Scientology, Josh. A little bit. A little bit. Uh, are all the Scientologists gone from the original departure or are any of them still hanging around? Fair question. Uh, I don't remember anybody that it departed that was definitely clear. It's not like we lost Travolta, Josh. No. That would be a real travesty. Pseudoscientology. So I don't know. We'll we'll see. It's It certainly seems like we're going to get some more clarity on this next week based on the preview. Seems to be uh, Kevin and Nora are going to make their way to Australia. Got to imagine we're going to get some momentum on this storyline. Yeah, and as we've said, the story that is building, and I think it, it is in play with uh, what we're seeing with Kevin Sr. in this episode, are these oppositional forces. That Nora and Kevin came together after these great things and terrible things that happened in their lives, and they do seem to have a good relationship in some ways, but in other ways, it is markedly bad. Like, they don't share these deep secrets with each other. They are keeping each other sheltered from what's going on. We don't know to what extent that Kevinism or that Nora with the microwave machine or all these things are going to present huge roadblocks for them that they can't uh, overcome. But we are tracking that if that is Nora Durst in the future at the beginning of episode, or at the end of episode one, she doesn't want to acknowledge that the name Kevin means anything to her. And so we do seem to be on a path where something happens between them or in their lives which creates this gap that she's not willing to acknowledge Kevin anymore and I just think that when it comes to this machine and when it comes to Kevinism and when it comes to Kevin Sr. there are these oppositional forces in play Nora the ultimate skeptic the ultimate denier the person whose job it is to sniff 
about fake spirituality, the person who we see taking on these guilty remnant or oppositional or hostile traits, Kevin Sr., the person who's willing to basically do anything in pursuance of these beliefs, and Kevin Jr., who is caught right in between the middle of the two of them, and that Kevin Sr. maybe isn't on board with Kevin Jr., and there is this triangle forming, and Matt playing a role in that, and how he and Kevin Sr. have seemed like friends at certain times, but now seem oppositional. Matt is Nora's literal brother, and the stuff that Matt is doing and worshiping Kevin Jr., there are all these interpersonal relationships between the characters, which are trading so much on the themes of this show, that an episode like this, which delves heavily into the thematic elements, still has a ton of value from a narrative standpoint, because it will influence the events that happen later between these characters, and whether or not they're able to get on the same page with the events that they're going to face to come, whether that is some great flood, whether that is somebody wanting to step into a microwave, whether that is being recruited by pseudoscientologists, it's hard to say, but we just have to track those very different and yet similar things about their personalities. Like I said, it's fascinating that Nora is so willing to acknowledge, even in her darkest, deepest moments, that maybe she's cursed and yet unwilling to acknowledge that Kevin could be blessed or magical, that Kevin Sr. is willing to acknowledge that there's something special about him, but not that there's something special about his son. Uh, there are all these oppositional elements in play, and it's the, the confluence of those oppositional elements and what that will produce that we're looking forward to over the course of the rest of this season. All right, well. Well, I think that that's going to do it for us here on this podcast, unless you have anything else that you really want to quickly bring up. Brendan Fitzpatrick asks, do you wish we'd seen a young Kevin Garvey at age nine at all during the tape recordings, even if it was just for a second? Or do you feel like it was worked being audio only? And Josh, follow up. Does this mean that Kevin Garvey Jr. invented podcasting? <laughs> I don't think he invented podcasting. but I think Kevin Who Gar- invented podcasting? Rob Sesternino? Yeah, I think Kevin Garvey Jr. would be a great podcaster i don't think he's the inventor of podcasting but i think that he'd be great in this day and age as a podcast i love i loved it and there you have it like i just thought like his little sign off was really really great uh do i wish i had seen it no i i think that hearing it was was a really great device uh and the tape recorder uh and and kevin senior's attachment to the thing was so touching that when it stops working, it's so heartbreaking. I think I commented to you off the air, but not on the air, that it's like in Castaway. Spoiler alert, in Castaway, uh, when Tom Hanks loses Wilson, it was like a moment like that where it's like, this has been Kevin Sr.'s companion uh, as he's been going down the song line when he's not learning the music that he needs to learn to stop the end of the world. He's been spending time listening to his son's voice when he was a nine-year-old kid, and that has been his only friend on this journey. Um, That's really, really touching in a lot of ways and devastating, heartbreaking when that voice disappears, the voice in his head, which, by the way, even thinking about about that further, if you're thinking about the voices in Kevin Sr.'s head and he's been trying to follow those and he doesn't know, like, the voice has stopped, he's literally walking the song line with Kevin Jr.'s voices in his head. Yeah, he is. Yeah. And and he loses that at some point. And not to mention that that tape was made in the wake of the loss of his wife and that that was this great personal loss that he experienced, not a loss like the departure, a loss perhaps even less explainable than that, uh, in that it just seems so random. She was young. It happened when Kevin Jr. was nine years old. Like this is something that they had to process together and that the the tape recorder was a gift from from the late wife and that 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 was in many ways it's not just Kevin Jr. and that his voice that's on the tape that Kevin Sr. is tapping into there is that whole element of what happened with his wife and it 
it's not mentioned in this episode, I think, on accident or by accident, uh, depending on your region of the country, I guess. Uh, but it is something that that is is relevant, uh, that this is part of his overall story. And you're right. It is just filled with so much sadness. Uh, and it is fascinating. Uh, two more things quickly, Josh, before we close, just very yep. quickly. One, this is a great comment from R. Philly, I thought. R. Philly said, Kevin Jr.'s reporting on the attempted assassination of President Reagan leads Sr. to explain to him in definitive terms that John Hinckley did it, quote, because he was crazy. I thought that was a remarkable little note to reinforce this conflict we're presented with about who exists within whose story. It's kind of a mirrored inception, whereby this passing comment to young Kevin informs his mission and adornment as an assassin in the other place. And Senior's entire vision quest is predicated on young Kev imploring him to sing consummate Lindeloffing. Uh, there is a lot in those tapes, Josh. There's a lot of uh, a lot of interesting stuff to pick apart like this, where we hear a seemingly with it Kevin Sr. talking to Kevin Jr. and saying this person who assigned some random value to this thing that happened in this movie, they're crazy. And yet that's exactly what Sr. is doing in this episode. He's assigning random value to the tape of him saying that someone assigning random value to things is crazy, Josh. It's an interesting point. Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah. So yeah, I think I think aside from just being you know fun to listen to, there there is definitely some material to mine in those tapes. Yeah, and uh, and in pursuance of that, and in terms of like where he's looking for meaning and why he's trying to do that, because ultimately, as you point out, he's traveling the song line, he's doing all these things. He says he wanted a sense of purpose. He needed something, and it's fascinating because, of course, when we see Kevin Senior together and with it in the Garveys at their best, he's telling Kevin Junior, "You have no greater purpose." This, and he's talking about being a family man, having these kind of events in your life, uh, marking time pass raising your kids, doing all that. This is enough. This is your purpose. This is all you need. You don't have to be Don Quixote and tilt at windmills or feel like you have to save the world, save damsels from distress. He directly tells Kevin that this is enough. This is your purpose. And yet Kevin Sr., when he's off the rails, feels like he is, it is almost quixotic in a way. Like he is tilting at windmills. He is saying, like ultimately, it is I who have to be this knight errant and save the world by learning this song. It's not that he's crazy. It's that he he thinks that he has some greater purpose and he's reading some meaning into that. And I think he's doing it, Josh, ultimately because he's searching for meaning. He's searching for some value. He's searching for some answer. And I think the Bible page we see with uh, with this and this final comment we had from uh, one of our great listeners of these uh, these recaps, Laura Olson. Laura said, Isaiah 41.10, which is the verse I believe they were referencing, is a promise from God. It is meant to get us through the hard times, knowing we always have someone to comfort and love us so to not be afraid. Though God will test us, we will go through hard times. He will take care of us and things will work out. I think everything Senior went through in this episode alone pretty much sums up that verse. And I think that that's a, a good note to end on, which is just that... There are these things in the world that exist, and spirituality is a huge part of that, that people seek to find comfort in. Some people read into the most uh, outrageous stuff, uh, whether, it's, uh, whether it's some signs that they're jumping on top of a roof for, or whether it's something like a song line or a bird pecking at a tape. There are people who re read into these things because they're searching for some greater comfort or for some greater meaning. At his most well-adjusted, at his most firm... This Garvey at his best, if you will. 
this Garvey at his best, exactly, in the very episode titled that, this Kevin Sr., that to him, life is enough, that we don't need to search for greater meaning, that the greater meaning is in the details, that the greater meaning is in the trees, not just the forest. You don't have to worry about the forest, revel in the trees. And when Kevin Sr. is not at his best, and when he's not at his most well-adjusted, and when he does need something greater, he's willing to go literally across the world and go back and forth and talk to chickens and climb up on roofs and do all of the things we're seeing him do in this episode because he's searching for the very comfort that other people find in, in actual spirituality and in actual religion. And I think as we talk about the rise of Kevinism throughout the course of this season, that's one of the things to track. Why are people interested in it? The Grace Playholt monologue in this, in this particular episode plays right into that. Why was she so ready to accept that she should dunk this police chief into the water why was she so fervent in doing so it's because she's so desperate to find some kind of meaning uh we saw john himself uh, this being john murphy in this season a guy who was the ultimate skeptic there are no miracles and miracles say this can't have all been for nothing like i'm open to kevinism because i'm willing to say that we can't have been going through all of this for nothing and so I think what we're looking at is not only the micro world of why Kevinism can work, but just larger why spirituality is meaningful to people, the comfort that they draw from it, and why there might be some validity to it, that there are some things in the world that are unexplained to us, and that there are these God's tongue incidents uh, where people have literally heard God speak to them. And should we dismiss that or should we realize that maybe that we should be some kind that we should draw some kind of greater truth from that or go on some greater spiritual quest from that? I think all of that is represented in Kevin Sr. in this episode, not just the let's go off the deep end element of it. But as we hear in the tapes, this trying to find greater meaning in the realities of the situations and finding solace in the things that are real in this world, like your family and sharing love and doing those things that their ultimate level are Christian or are biblical in their message and yet are just the very petty practicing day-to-day kind of things you can do to show that spirituality and love it's all playing out on Kevin Sr. over the decades and I think it's great using the tape as a device I think it's great pointing out all these things because Kevin Sr. is a fascinating individual Scott Glenn is able to carry so much of that weight and as a result I really did like this episode and think it will even if we don't get a ton more narrative value in this series when we look back at the thematic context of this series it will represent a great deal hence what I said at the start of this podcast that like that's the kind of thing that I'm trying to embrace more and more with The Leftovers. Less about the plot, more about the feeling, more about the themes, more about the ways that this show is making you think. That's what I'm in it for right now, and I'm hoping that the plot's real good, too. And I think that it is. So far, I'm pretty intrigued. I'm pretty happy with it. Uh, So, three episodes deep, I'm still satisfied with The Leftovers. Hope you guys are at least satisfied with our Leftovers podcasting. Antonio, you crushed it today. Great stuff today, Antonio. Yeah, thank you. And I don't mean to downplay the comments we got from Andrew Umphrey, from Jeff Spence, as you pointed out, the discussion we had with Noah on Twitter Twitter. Like the, I understand if you're, you're, that your mileage may vary on this particular episode. We had our great friend Alex Coons observe that there is a lot. There is a lot of lost PTSD that people are processing. That maybe people don't like these elements of of what's going on or concerned. I think if you do focus from the thematic and you do focus like you're saying, I think it will end up being more rewarding. And I do think a lot of these things, from a narrative standpoint, are going to tie in as well. Yeah, um, we will be back very soon. Uh, we will return, Josh. We will return. We will suddenly return in just a few days to talk about the halfway point of the final season of The Leftovers, an episode called Good Day, Melbourne. 
<laughs> yes, which uh, is what I say every morning when I wake up and go outside into the little uh, small town of Melbourne, Kentucky, where I reside. Indeed. All right, so we will say good day, Melbourne, on Sunday when episode four of The Leftovers season three rolls around. Uh, do we have a hashtag for this episode, Antonio? Anything that you jotted down? Do you have any suggestions? I didn't jot anything um, down. How about hashtag Meg to differ? All right, hashtag Meg to differ. That's okay, perfect. You, Let's go if with you, hashtag If you Meg, Meg to, differ. to differ with our takes on this episode of The Leftovers, we would love to hear that. Give us hashtag Meg to differ on Twitter. Antonio is at AC Mazzaro. I am at Round Howard. You can get your feedback into us at all times, but especially before the feedback shows is really where you want to do it, at postshowrecaps.com. Slash feedback is our feedback form. Leftovers at postshowrecaps.com is our email address. Please subscribe if you have not already. Postshowrecaps.com slash leftovers iTunes for iTunes. All other forms of podcatcher and podcasting, postshowrecaps.com slash feed slash leftovers. Antonio, anything else? No, just uh, if you've got uh, greater thoughts, and we had so much great feedback uh, that has been submitted, as I said, uh, before, during, and after the time periods for this, feel free to take them to the comment sections at postshowrecaps.com. The first couple of episodes, especially one and two, uh, there were some lively discussions going on there. So if you want to continue to participate there, jump into the comments and throw your theories out there. Uh, We'll jump in and out, and I know the other people that are in the comments there would love to hear them as well. Awesome. All right, guys, we'll be back very, very soon to discuss more leftovers. Take care, everybody. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Yeah!